0: So 6.30 to 8 p.m. Friday night, you have a middle schooler, 6th to 8th grade, come, have them come down here. Uh, if they don't have a Nerf gun, we have Nerf guns for them, because we're like that. So it'll be a whole lot of fun. So there you go. Bring your kids. And maybe, well, I don't know. i got to look at my calendar. Maybe I'll show up as the sacrificial lamb, so to speak, because that's how it works. Uh, so welcome to Element. If you are new, you're like, why did I come here? uh i got a Nerf bullet uh, if you're new welcome there are bibles in the back if you don't own one you can have one if you forgot one you can use one there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room they look like this on the inside you get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about as well as some questions to go deeper if you have a smartphone you can download an app it is called Uversion. you click on more and then events in Uversion. version will come up by gps in your smartphone and you'll get sermon notes versus questions announcements all that goes with today's message my name is aaron i'm one of the pastors here why don't you stand with me for the reading of god's word Uh, This is Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, and it says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand what you have given us, the wages that that you pay, and that we would begin to live out our lives with an understanding of of the greater importance of your grace and your mercy and your love that we would begin to live out our lives in ways that people would see that goodness based upon how we live as your children, as we understand greater and greater your mercy and love towards us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is the book of Ruth, week six. We're just chugging along. Kind of scares me. I looked at the thing and it said 49 days till we have our agape thing at the other building. Makes me want to throw up because I'm like, oh. Man, it's so close. It's so close. Uh, We're looking at God's story uh, within all of our stories because our stories will never make sense unless we understand it as God's overarching story of us. Things only make sense when they are found in him. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson once wrote, All great narrative is composed of a problem, an unraveling of it, and a solution. And so in our lives, we have this problem, which is called sin. We hurt each other, we hurt God, other people have hurt us, and our lives begin to unravel because of it, but there is a solution that God has provided. He has sent Jesus to rescue and redeem his people. So this is what's behind really the book of Ruth, it's central to all of the scriptures, redemptive history, and God's story. In the book of Ruth, we look at really four main characters as you go through it. Uh, the first one is God, because God is always first in all things, God can bring hope and redemption to any situation, no matter how dire it might seem to you, and we're going to Talk about what God has done mostly at the end of this message today. Uh, the second uh, person you see most of is someone named Naomi. Naomi is really hard to pin down because sometimes she shows great faith in trusting the sovereignty of God, but she doesn't show a lot of great faith in trusting in God's goodness. So she's a bitter woman. She's had everything stripped from her. She has lost her husband and her two children. Uh, They have died, so now she is destitute. And the only person around to help her and move her through life is a young woman from a foreign country that nobody in her hometown likes because of this woman's ancestry, which takes you to... Ruth. She's really kind of the third person. Ruth is a young Moabite woman. I mentioned last week that Moabite women had this reputation. The reputation was like the green ladies on Star Trek. Anybody watch Star Trek? Yes. All right, like the green ladies—very sensual, very sexual. That's the Moabites. And that fell flat first, and second service, by the way, because whatever. Okay. Okay, i got to be a Trekkie, right? Okay, so this this comes about, this whole view of who Ruth is simply because of where she was born. Moabite women at one point were used to seduce Israelite males away from God. And so Moabite women have this stigma around them that they're easy. They're the ones that guys will date but not marry. So ladies be one that guys want to marry. And in the text, this is repeated over and over in the story. Ruth 1, four says they took Moabite wives. Ruth one twenty two calls her Ruth the Moabite. Ruth 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, even out in the field last week when Boaz shows up and he sees Ruth all alone, and he says, who's that? And the foreman doesn't just say, oh, that's the young lady that came with Naomi. It says that's the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi. So all these ways of saying, you know, those ones, they're great in the sack, easy to get there. And the thing is, Ruth doesn't hide from that. She knows what the stigma is about her people, so she seeks to change it. It's like if someone makes fun of you for something stupid, sometimes the best thing to do, just own it. Just own it and walk through it, and it pulls all the power out of it. Anybody ever seen this great American classic movie called 8 Miles starring Eminem? Yeah. All right, all right. First two services, they're like, what? First service was like, I don't even know. I don't believe that's a movie. Eminem's? So, that's the trailer before the movie starts. No, okay, so this guy, his name's Eminem. Anyway, in this movie, they have all these rap battles. And in these rap battles, you're supposed to try and put the other person down. And if you put them down and up the crowd, cheers for you and, and you get to win. So at the end of the movie, you got this kid. He's, been, he's struggling in this culture that's not his own per se, kind of a lot of connotations in Ruth. And the last rap battle, this main character is going up against his nemesis, like happens in all movies. Uh, and, and so as he starts to get in this rap of what he does is he starts to own everything about his life and he starts to take away all of his opponent's power so he says you know I live in a trailer park with my mom I mean he just, just owns that he got beat up by his opponents and their buddies he doesn't have a job he's a loser from a broken home and when he's done the guy he's rapping against has nothing to say about him there's nothing he can do because the kid has just owned it all and taken all of the power away see an 8 mile reference in a Sunday service there you go but this is kind of the story of Ruth. This is, she knows what everyone thinks. She knows how she is perceived. And instead of playing the victim, woe is me card, look how terrible this is, she simply begins to live differently. And this is a good example for us. Because, yes, if you are a Christian at some point in your life, someone will probably want to make fun of you. You know Why? Because Christians are idiots, okay? They've been idiots for a really long time. And so instead of saying, oh, it's our we should reclaim the name. We should live differently. We, when Christians sin and do stupid things, we call it what it is. We, we don't run away from it. And then we live differently. We reclaim what it is meant to be. If you are someone who's unmarried and you decide, I'm going to wait till I get married to have sex, people will make fun of you. They'll make movies like the 40-year-old virgin to make fun of you. That's, that's what happens. But when you really own it and you understand this, you'll see statistically that people who wait to get married to have sex actually have more sex and better sex throughout the course of their marriage. It's a beautiful thing when you really think about it. And so what we need to do is not necessarily run so much from our mistakes, even you know, because the, they shape us a little bit, but we don't let it define who we are. We own it. We, we take our problems, our past. We walk forward because God is the one who saves us, not what people say about us. Jesus, what he says about us, he's the one who saves us. That's what we remember. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. And as you do, I'll tell you about the fourth person you meet in the story. His name is Boaz. Uh, Boaz is a guy who goes against his culture because his culture doesn't really seem to care about what is right but Boaz does he is a man who is true to the scriptures and how he understands I think how God loves him and so he lives a certain way in his life and he cares for those around him when Boaz first sees Ruth someone who's new to his field he goes to his foreman in Ruth 2.5 and he says whose young woman is that who is this person the question is who is protecting her who is looking out for her it's not as some common think that boaz is like hey who's the babe hubba 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 that, that's not what he's doing there's none of that in the hebrew text itself he sees that ruth has no one that she is alone that she is vulnerable and when no one is found who's taking care of ruth boaz has compassion he steps up to the plate so to speak and he provides for her he gives her food and protection which takes us to the short section we're going to look at today uh, ruth chapter two starting in verse eight which is where we left off last week ruth to eight So this is the time period of the judges. I've told you this repeatedly. And Boaz knows that men in this time, they are not virtuous. So he says, you work in my field and I will protect you. You stay close to my young women. And the word young women in Hebrew, it means virgins. It's maidens. And so these need to be taken care of. So he instructs his men, don't hurt her. Don't stop her from getting the food that she needs to get. Don't touch her. Also, I think in this is included, don't humiliate her. Don't sit there and keep calling her Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite hey Ruth the Moabite knock it off start to show her some dignity and respect because in the end Boaz wants to make sure like I said she's taken care of And that Ruth gets what she needs, not just for her, but also for her mother in law, Naomi. And at this point in the story, there's not even really a whole lot of sexual tension like we'd have in movies today. They've noticed each other's character. I think the author alludes to that. But there's nothing where Boaz does what he does to get something from Ruth, or Ruth does what she does to get something from Boaz. So Boaz steps in, helps Ruth. What's her response? It is shock and amazement. Ruth 2.10 Then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Again, she owns it. She knows who she is and so she just states it and throws it out there. She doesn't shy away. She doesn't say, yeah, you need to get your workers under control because they're a bunch of pigs. They're like sailors on shore leave and they're leering at me. You need to knock that off. She doesn't do that. She doesn't get indignant. She is grateful and thankful that Boaz would do something that nobody else in that culture would probably do. Her words aren't false humility. They're truth spoken in terms of thankfulness. Verse 11, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Now, Boaz is a guy who seems to be above small-town gossip. But whenever you go anywhere and all that anybody is talking about is Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Moabite women. Oh, there's one right there. Woo, Look at her. When everybody's all just talking about that, you'll, you tend to get the story. And so that's kind of, I think, what Boaz gets. She's like, why have you helped me? And I think he's like, you are the girl who converted to follow the living God. You are the one who left everything to care for someone you didn't have to because you love God. That's yeah, what he says. And then he says, verse 12, The Lord we pay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now remember that because we're going to come back to that. Verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And this is written kind of weird in the Hebrew. You get the gist of it in the words. But really there's this thing of... of hey, why are you helping me? I'm helping you because I've heard about this. And the answer from Ruth when she says, but I'm just this servant, that in Ruth's culture would be the lowest of the lowest of the low. She says that in his eyes in this she doesn't even have the standing of a slave to him and yet he's taking care of her so she thanks him not to continue to try and get him to be kind but simply because he was and is kind that's who he is and i think boaz lives that way because the text constantly alludes to this that he lives this way because of his faith in the god of israel that he understands who god is and what god has done to actually save him this is why we talked about character a bit last week. Boaz lives a certain way because he understands who God is first. James 1, 2 in the New Testament says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Live out what you know to be true, is what James says. James 2, 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James 2, 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is not telling you you're saved by Works. We are not saved by our works. We're not saved by any other work than the work that Jesus did on the cross. But true faith, when we understand what Jesus has done, becomes to be lived out as evidence in our lives, as shown by Boaz and eventually Ruth. And this understanding of living out a real faith is what undergirds the Scriptures. That when we understand who God is and what God has done, we simply begin to change because of our understanding. When we know what God has done to rescue and save us, we change. We don't change because we're afraid that God's going to smite us or smack us. If we we only change because of that, we will never live in a loving relationship with God. We will never love God for who he is. Boaz says to Ruth, 2.12, The Lord will repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I actually wrote a note in my Bible when I was going through Ruth, because before I teach you guys a book, I probably started going through Ruth two years ago. And I'll read through it, I make notes, and I come back, and I read through it, and I make notes, and I write these messages like a year ago. And I kind of I go through so I can read and have a whole bunch of stuff in my head before I start doing stuff. And I wrote a little comment right here in my notes, and it says, what are the wages that God pays? What are the wages that God pays? So I want to take a moment, by a moment, I mean the rest of the message, <laughs> you're welcome, <laughs> You know, to talk about this. Because I think too many people are fuzzy on what this means. The scriptures are clear that all of our actions, everything we do, are visible before God. Uh, Ephesians 5.13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. God is light. He exposes all the darkness and things we try to hide. First Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In the beginning of the scriptures, God told mankind, you sin, you die, because sin is that serious. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So when you think about sin and wages, what kind of wages does sin pay? Death. That's, that's what it pays. And we've talked about this before. I've given a whole message on this. You know, what is sin? And the simplest that I can define it for you, sin is all the ways we try to put ourselves in the place of God. All the ways that we rebel. All the ways that we say, God, I know better than you how to live my life. All of those things, we steer creation and our lives in the opposite direction of where God calls us to. And so you see this, the wages of sin is death. Well, what else? Well, what does God pay? Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So does God repay vengeance? Is, is that his wages? And honestly, depending on where you look at this in the timeline of the cross, the answer is yes and no. We have this thing that we do at Element. If you ever want to become a member, it's called the Gospel Class. Our Gospel Class is eight weeks long. It teaches you basically Christian theology and what Element's vision is for what we want to do, uh, not just you know, kind of in our city, but really what we want Element to be no matter when people leave or come, but whatever, all that, what we want Element to be. And one of the questions in the Gospel Class is when we are saved, what are we saved from? Anybody know the answer? Because God. Too many people think, oh, I'm saved from the devil. Oh, I'm saved from hell. No, we're, we're saved from God and his judgment and wrath on sin. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So Jesus comes and he takes the wrath of God on himself. That's what the cross is about. And what do we get? We get unmerited grace. That's what we get. We change and live differently, not because we're afraid of God's wrath, because of our understanding of his great mercy. Because he is the one who appeased his own wrath at sin. He is the one who rescues us. He is the one who does this. Romans 12.1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This literally means, I appeal to you in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, you live out the life of faith that he calls you to. You become a living sacrifice every single day in view of God's mercy. That's where it starts. It doesn't start in fear. It doesn't start in anger. It doesn't start in wanting to run. It starts in the view of God's mercy. This is why we look at Jesus' sacrifice every week in communion. And you're meant to view it a certain way. We realize and understand that, that sin, it is horrible. But sin and evil have been overcome. The wrath of God against our wages of sin has been paid. God hates sin because of what it does. It destroys life and relationship and truth and beauty. And God himself is holy, right, and true, and just, and he loves us. But God is concerned more than just love. God is also concerned with justice both. And if you look at this intellectually, if God wanted love without justice or justice without love, Jesus would never have had to go to the cross. Like if God just wanted justice without love, he would have just killed everybody and said, done, I'll start over. But he doesn't do that. And if God just wanted love without justice, he could have winked and ignored sin. But really, that's not truly love. Because love and justice in the end will go hand in hand. Because if God really loves us, he has to do something about the evil that we commit against him and others. And the evil that has been committed against us. So what does he do? Jesus goes to the cross to show that evil had to be punished, yet provide for us to have a way to overcome it. So when we look at our sin and we think it's not that serious, it is. Too many people shrug it off like sin isn't a big deal. I mean, I think we don't say this out loud, but I think a lot of us have this in mind like, you know what, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, we're a match made in heaven. That's how too many people look at this. It's a big deal. Jesus died on a cross. And I know it sounds so cliche to say that nowadays. Jesus died on a cross. And that should show you how important sin and how serious sin is. Most Christians today don't understand a lot of theology or understand why Jesus had to die. And the What in the World series I got a lot of questions about this. I think it's because most people are not realistic about the nature of sin and how insidious it is, and what it does in people's lives. Jesus dying on a cross proves, in the best biblical case I could ever muster, that sin and selfishness in the human heart is way more serious than most people think. Jesus dying on a cross shows how God God will take human sin seriously, how he will deal with it, how he will work through it, and how he cares about justice and love and truth. Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus dying on the cross so we can be forgiven shows at the same moment he hates evil and yet he will overcome it in us. In a way, love without justice or justice without love is actually easier because just doing one of those things might never cost you anything at all. But, but to all go into someone's life who maybe has hurt you and to do both of those things becomes very hard. To maybe pray for someone who has hurt you or still give somebody maybe a second or a third or a fourth chance to care about a person when everything in your mind is screaming. They're just going to abuse you again. Stop. And, and they may. So you may need to take some things to protect yourself in that. But love and justice always cost something. But if you just want to be angry and walk away, that costs you nothing. You don't have to deal. If you just want to love and say, oh, I'm just going to forgive. I'm never going to even deal with it. That costs you nothing. To actually have love and justice and deal with it always costs something because there are wages. And this is what we see on the cross. This is what the cross steers us towards and how we live and how we respond, not just to God, but to one another. If we forgive others and hold them to account in a way, it's going to cost us in a different way. To forgive in a way that includes justice is costly. Because many times, sometimes that will be every day to remind yourself, don't keep bringing that up. Don't keep bringing that up. Or maybe you've wronged somebody else. And your response then is, well, they'll never forgive me. Uh, They'll never want to really talk about it. They're not doing the right thing either, and you just ignore it. It is so much harder to actually go to someone and actually deal with the issue in a way that brings about reconciliation as much as is possible by you. Keller likens it to this biblical example of grafting into a tree. The only way to graft a branch into a tree is you have to cut and gouge out a section in a tree. You've got to wound a tree to put something in. And the more deeply it's wounded, the deeper the graft can go in. And only at that point where a tree is wounded does a branch go in. And what Jesus says to us is, I was wounded so you could be grafted in. That's what I did. And we understand that the wages God has promised for our sin is death, but also realize that he was wounded in our place to bring us in so we can have restored relationship with him and others. And when we begin to look around our lives and we see the cost of what he did and we take that to heart, we begin to forgive. No matter what has been done to you, it's nothing like what we really did to him. This is why we talk about how it is always God's story. It is always God's story. Our lives are found in Him. God is not your co-pilot. God is the writer and author of your story, and your life only makes sense when found in Him. The cross, in the end, should change our self-image about everything. Because without the cross, all that we're left with is our sin. That's all that we have, our rebellion. But if Jesus is our righteousness, and Jesus is our peace, and He is our hope, and He is our Redeemer, we have a firm foundation to now base our life upon, to be able to live out the good news that He has made us new. So when you go back to these ideas of James one twenty two, be doers of the word, not hearers only, or James 2.18, that someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's the understanding that James is saying, I understand what Jesus did to rescue and save me. And so I'm going to live a certain way that people would know. James is not advocating a works-based salvation. That's not what he's doing. He's steering us to understand that when we comprehend what Jesus did to save us, our entire lives become about loving him and serving him in ways that honor him. And then you go back to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how it all fits together. By the mercies of God, we live out our faith because we realize what God has done. And this is what Boaz does. And this is what Ruth is beginning to do. Eventually in the text, it's kind of amazing that this word has said, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, this word has said is used of God. It will be used to talk about Ruth's character as well because you will see her start to conform more and more to the likeness and image of God because I think she's trusting and understanding who he is. And I know the Bible is full of stories of people who say they believe and, and do some pretty horrible things. A lot of those were what in the world questions. And I think we can find some comfort there. Because many of us will find ourselves in the same place at some point, far from God, after having coming to know him. And this is why I think the story of Ruth, that people love it. Because it's about this return, this coming home to who God calls you to be. This is why people love the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. Because lots of us have been there to that idea of the prodigal son. If you don't know the story of the prodigal son, I'm going to butcher it, uh, but, but here you go. His story is essentially, there's this kid, he goes to his dad and he says, hey, give me my half of the inheritance. And this is a way in that culture of saying, I wish you were dead. So the dad goes and he takes and he gets half of his inheritance and gives it to his son. His son goes, see ya. And he runs off and he squanders all of this money. He destroys his family's reputation. He destroys his own reputation. He destroys God's reputation. And by the end of this thing, he's, he's sitting, taking care of pigs, looking in, which is an unclean animal to Jews, looking in this trough of slop that the pigs are eating and thinking, man, I just want to eat that. And all of a sudden, he comes to his senses. And he goes, I need to go home to my father. Do you know what makes him decide to go home to his father? He remembers the kindness of his father. And then he's like, that's who my father is. So he decides to go home. That's a lot of us. Sitting sometimes in a place in our lives where we run from God and we think it's so horrible and so what brings you back is understanding God's kindness for us. It's true that people who seek to trust and follow and love Jesus will fall, will walk into sin all of the time. We do these things. Even the writers of scriptures did this. But I will tell you when we forget who God is and what he has done, we will continue just to live in that place. We will never want to get out because we fail to understand the kindness and the goodness of God. First John two four, John says this Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And a lot of people want to take that out of context. And just we understand the whole book of John is about people that he's arguing that just have head knowledge. Oh, I just got to have the knowledge and I don't have to live it out. And the whole book is centered around this idea of love. And John, what he's saying is when you really love God, obedience becomes natural. It just becomes natural because you want to live out and show who God is because you understand what he has done in your life. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. Our obedience, which is, I know, a horrible word in America, but our obedience comes out of our understanding of who he is. Think about this. Think about this. You have way more information at your fingertips today than someone like Ruth or Boaz did. And how does all that information change you to grow to be more like Jesus? It doesn't. Information doesn't. It's when it starts to get into your heart, when you start to understand what he has done. That's what begins to change us. You'll begin to live more like Jesus or Boaz because you understand it. Which is why at Element every week we're always calling you guys back to understand redemption, to understand hope, the goodness of God. I kind of always land at the same place. I, got. I tell you this, I have one message. That's all I got. It's called Jesus. That's my message. And that's what I preach every single week. It's all about Him. To live as He gives us strength. To walk in His ways. To honor Him and glorify Him in all things. Because when we realize that our lives are surrendered to Jesus, his truth and the cross and salvation becomes central to the gospel. We have hope because we understand God's love for us. We have hope because God has sought us and given us new life. And what that means is when we understand it, evangelism becomes a priority for us. It's not like, oh, I've got to hand out tracts. No, evangelism isn't this horrible word. Evangelism is, I love Jesus. Hey, you look like your life is shut. Let me talk to you about him. Let me tell you what he can do, because it's amazing. I'm a knucklehead, and he loves me. (laughs) What's your excuse? (laughs) What happens is is we start to treat others. How we treat them becomes an important priority. How we step into devastation of things like Puerto Rico and, and the hurricanes and all this stuff. How we step into those things. And all the cultural divide that's around our country today based upon race, Guys, how we view Jesus is going to speak into that in every part of our lives. How we love and live it out. Because understand, God has first loved and sought us. And then obedience becomes a defining mark. Not because God loves us more because we're obedient. It's because of what, what we start just to love him because he has first loved us. And it comes out that way. And this is what Boaz starts to see and recognize in the character of Ruth. Because she starts to love and serve and follow God when she understands him. This is just like the growth of the disciples. They first had faith in Jesus, then they had the faith of Jesus, then they began to think and live and act like Jesus, because at the beginning, they didn't. I mean, there's one point where Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and this, and this town of Samaritan's like, well, we don't want you here. And his disciples are like, hey, uh, should we cut on fire from heaven and just wipe them off the map? Like Jesus would say, that's a good idea, right? It's, what? And then you have this same guy who says that to Jesus is the one who in the book of 1 John is talking about we are be marked by love. We are being marked by grace. You see the difference in what Jesus did in him. This is what the gospel does. This is how the gospel changes us. And so you see the disciples understand that Jesus' death, then his resurrection, and then the spirit comes And they're like, Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He really is the revelation of God Himself. And therefore, they trust Him with everything in their lives. Elton Trueblood wrote some profoundly true words, and they're very simple. He says, the deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong. The deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong. How did Jesus speak about the Father? He uses words like, Daddy. These are words of love and hope and grace that god speaks into our lives faith does involve certain beliefs it involves an attitude of hope and confidence but at its core faith is trusting a person we trust jesus that's what we do in churches today people spend a lot of time to get people to try and trust jesus for eternity or trust jesus to get you into heaven and nobody ever talked about what that looks like today the gospel, it is about the future. But the gospel is mostly gospel present. Where we live now, today, every bit of our lives is now. The good news isn't meant to be when I die, I go to heaven. It's meant to be, hey, right now, Jesus loved and saved me and redeemed. me. he's calling me and and he's moving me into redemptive ways so that I live in redemptive ways. This is what Jesus does every day of our life. And I think when people only understand the gospel in terms of I go to heaven when I die... This is why you get all these weird, crazy ideas out of Christianity where God isn't a God of love and God isn't a God of grace. Some people may even think they trust Jesus, but I don't think they really understand what that means. Because if we share the core belief that Jesus shared, our lives are going to look a lot more like his. Our lives are going to be lived out in a way because our core belief is that Jesus wasn't wrong and how he viewed the Father was true and right. I know some people who claim to be Christians can be greedy and selfish and judgmental. Don't ask me how I know. I am one, right? So I I know this. Others are humble and generous. But people who constantly live one of these two ways, they'll both say they trust Jesus. They both may think that they trust Jesus, but their convictions about how the way things really are couldn't be night and day from each other. And when you ask a question like, what are the wages that God pays? Some people are about, well God's gonna come back and he's gonna he's gonna take all those people out that that you know that disagree with me because that's what God's supposed to do. He's supposed to prove I'm right. God's about hope and grace and redemption. And so you have this other side where people are like, I want to live like Jesus called me to live, period. And I'm not saying that at some point there isn't justice because God is got the justice and love. But we have to understand that we will never live out the life that Jesus calls us to without first simply understanding who God himself is and what Jesus has done to rescue us. And I've got to tell you, at Element, our prayer for you guys every week is that you would understand the love and the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God that he would lead you to live in ways of true love that many times does include that justice, that we would understand that he has first loved us, so you would love that you understand he first gave and blessed you so that you would give and bless. And so when we talk about this idea of what the wages of sin are, you know, the wages of sin are death. But who took care of that wage? Jesus took care of that wage. And so what wage does God now pay? Grace and mercy and hope and love. By the mercies of God, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. That's what he offers us. Now, anybody here have a job? Anybody ever had a job? Okay, all right. What happens when you go to a job and they pay you? Those are called wages. What do you do with those wages? You spend them. So let me ask you another question. If God is paying you in grace and love and hope and redemption and mercy, how are you spending it? Yes, on others. Because he has sent you to be a blessing in the world. So you begin to think about all the grace that he has bestowed upon you. And then how that then starts to get spent in others' lives around you. So they would understand who God is. That God has bestowed upon you mercy and hope and grace and love. So you begin to spend those wages in a way that reflects the goodness of who he is. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. You come there and you either break the cracker or you, or you take a broken cracker that's there. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us that our great God came to take care of the wages of sin, which is death. And at this place, He sets us free. He takes everything that we deserve because of our sin upon Himself. All the the crap that everybody has done to you or you have done to others was actually taken care of at the place of the cross. You do not have to crucify somebody else when they offend you because Jesus was already crucified. How liberating is that? I'm so mad. I know they don't need to be crucified, but they should be. right? That's how we live our lives so often. We want somebody to be crucified. So That's how mad I am. Jesus already paid that wage. And so now, taking communion is the understanding that that wage has been paid so we get to live in grace and hope and love and redemption. This is what God does. This is what we're supposed to keep in view of who he is. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to bite you to communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, if you have been someone in your life who has only seen God who pays a wage of like anger, and He's going to squish you, and if you step out of line, or well, you ever said something like, "Well, I can't step into a church. God's going to strike me with lightning. Why would God do that? He wants you here. Maybe not here. You know, you get shot with a Nerf gun, but you know He wants you to learn about who He is. That's what He wants. This is why the whole point of why Jesus came, to call us and bring us back home again because our God is simply that good. And so if you have felt like God's wage in your life, that God just wants to squish you, let them pray with you. Talk to them about that. If you're someone who's looking for ways to begin to live out this grace and love and mercy and how that practically happens in daily life, they'd love to pray with you about that as well and talk through those things because our God is a God. ...of love and grace, justice and mercy. And all of these things come together in who He is. There's offering boxes inside one on in the back... ...and we give because God gave so much to us... ...giving is part of our worship. So you have the opportunity. We do not pass the plates. It's response to what He's done. You actually have to get up and do it. There's food in the back. Uh, grab something to eat. Maybe meet some other people. And maybe start asking some of these questions... ...this week with one another. What, what wages do you view that God has paid you? What things in your life... Do you, ...have you wrongly viewed as God's wages... And what things maybe have you attributed to somebody else, which actually is God paying you grace and love and mercy? And then how in turn can you take and begin to live that out? What is your understanding of who God is? Because that is going to inform how you begin to live out your life. So let's be a people who understand that God is a God of justice, but he has paid for the wages of our sin. And he has called us in to family with him. He has adopted us, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And so we get to live in hope and grace again. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us and remind us and convict us deep in our hearts and our souls about your goodness. That you would have us begin to live out the understanding of your redemption and salvation. And God, we know that sometimes that can, that can take a while. It can be hard. It can be hard to step into places where we reconcile and we forgive and we work through certain things. But I ask in the midst of that, you would get our eyes off of ourselves and we'd place them upon you. And we'd have this deep understanding as our lives begin to move forward that we would have this understanding of what you have done and what you continue to do. That we'd be undone and humbled by your grace. That we'd be humbled by the way that you love us. And that we would be a people who begin to reflect that and pay that out around us. As we understand all that you have given to us. That we would be a people who live out as your priests in this world. The understanding of your hope and your grace because of what you have first done in us. Father, we thank you for being about love and justice both. For taking sin seriously enough because of what it does, but also paying the wage for us for it. Bringing us and giving us new life and hope again. Teach us to live out your new life and your hope day by day by day as we trust you More and more. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.